0: Hi, everyone. My name is John McAdam, and this is the Sick to Wrestling podcast. We are going to roll out a podcast that we recorded, I want to say, around eight weeks ago. We always have an extra podcast in the vault just in case we can't record on this particular week, and we couldn't record this week, but we're not going to miss a week because we've got one waiting for you. I also wanted to say this. Obviously, the world was a different place eight weeks ago, whatever it was. I usually don't like to talk about this because I know you listen to these podcasts as a means of escape, but I want to wish everyone out there who's listening the very best. I mean, be safe. Please do what you need to be safe. We've got the two craziest things I have ever seen during the course of my life, and I just turned 55 going on at the exact same time concurrently. So, like I said, be safe, be safe from COVID 19. Be safe from crazy riders. Be safe from the orange guy who will tear grass hundreds of you to get the right photograph. Enjoy Stick to Wrestling. Jimmy Boone saying, you light up my life. She was referring to the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam, and this is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps, indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone Podcast. And I know some podcasts out there, there are some good wrestling podcasts, but are they wicked good? I didn't think so. And with that, I want to bring in my convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin. For the social media part of this show,
1: uh, Facebook page is awesome. Uh, we uh, we have results from around the world. We have cards from you. It's just great—a bunch of great guys. We have occasional group watches for events. Good time had by all.
0: Yes, sir, indeed. And if more on social media, follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam. We'll see two guys hitting each other with chairs. I don't always stick to wrestling, but uh, I mean, recently, John Boucher put something out where he has all the Madison Square Garden programs from the late 80s. So I've been retweeting that. John is a friend of the show, a former guest of ours, also a future guest of ours. And you'll also occasionally see me doing things like debating Mike Semperfeeve about who was a better third baseman, Mike Schmidt or Brooks Robinson. And you'll definitely see which one of us is from Baltimore. Mike, again, is a former guest and a future guest. So, Sean, speaking of results, what I do, and I want, as a matter of fact, do you have access to the internet right now? I should have asked you that before we started. So,
1: uh, one quick thing. If I sound a little disjointed so far, it's because I don't have notes in front of me because John refuses to tell me what this show is about.
0: I refuse so, I still don't know what this show is about. Refuses a strong word. But we're we're both going to be doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, can you like get on an internet webpage yes. right now? Can yes. you please go to WrestlingDataAllOneWord dot com? Now, while Sean is doing that, I want to thank the gentleman from Wrestling Data. His name is Axel Salbach. He's from Germany, and I use this Wrestling Data as a resource all the time. When I have time, I will put results up from past results, and I get them from this place. And Sean today. What we're going to be doing is randomly selecting shows from this website to discuss. And when I say randomly, I have three windows open from a website called random.org. And we're going to pick out a number between 1970 and 1992. Here we go. 1976. Now I have 1 through 12. 7. So that's July. And July nineteenth, nineteen seventy six. We're gonna pick a show to discuss. Sean, on the left, towards the top, it says events by date. You could push that's that. Yeah. And then and it says by uh, year. Can we go nineteen seventy six?
1: Seventy.
0: I thought it was seventy seven. Oh, let me double 76?
1: check. Seventy six. Okay. okay. And month.
0: Yep, July. Okay, day. Nineteen. Watch, we get a Wednesday night. There's nothing to really look at. Let's find out.
1: All the better. Then we'll have some fun shows. Okay, so... Oh, good Lord.
0: Saturday or something.
1: Guess so. We have the WWF in Steubenville. It's the 19th, right?
0: Yes. I have
1: okay, the Okay, we have 20... Okay, we have 20 shows. Uh, Steubenville and, um... Anyanta, New yeah. York. Okay, uh, those two, and um, we have all Japan, uh, Vancouver, Tulsa, yeah. Monroe, be- Memphis. Oh, Memphis. It Mem- must be a Monday. Uh, ask me twice.
0: All right, Memphis, here we
1: go. Uh, okay, Mid-South Coliseum, 8,312 in attendance. And let's see, your your main event is Jerry Lawler, Bobo Brazil. You also, uh, Jerry, going over, this is uh, for the NWA Southern Heavyweight title. Uh, Frankie Lane and Charlie Cook defeated the Mass Superstar 1 and 2 by disqualification. Uh, The Bicentennial Kings, who were in your 1976 tournament, um, defend against the very over team of Jerry Jarrett and uh, Jackie Fargo. Uh, Actually, Fargo and Jarrett were the Southern Tag Team champions. Princess Little Dove over Marie Levro, Bill Dromo over Tommy Gilbert, and a U.S. women's title match and Casey over Sylvia Hackney. I'm going to tell you right now which match sold this card. That's the Bicentennial Kings against Jarrett and Fargo. Uh,
0: yeah, a couple of quick notes. Uh, Jim Cornette says Condry and Hickerson were the best tag team he had ever seen before the Midnight Express.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah he, he, was, uh, he said that that was Condry's best team. That's how that whole conversation started. And the, just a fantastic heel team. They could do comedy. They were vicious. They could do the cowardly thing. Phil Hickerson's tremendous. He's one of the, he, he doesn't look like much. But, I mean, he just is so quick and so agile, especially back then. If you only saw him before he had the knee problems, like after he had the knee problems in 1980, then you really didn't see him. I mean, early on from, like, even back in, like, 74 when he was with… Um, uh shoot. The uh, with Al Green. Yeah. There's the Sherman tanks. I mean, that was a really good team too, but that's I mean, that the thing. He's just a really quick big guy. And he's a good seller too. Kind of in the slaughter mode.
0: Yeah, he was still good in like eighty nine, I wanna say, when he was doing that ridiculous PY Chuhai gimmick. Sure. I mean Phil Hickerson is turning Japanese. He got I, it don't over. Think so. I
1: got it over. I got it over. Phil is one of these guys who gets stuff over. Uh, under pretty much any circumstances, and even ja- Jackie Fargo was selling even then, uh, J- and Jerry Jarrett was a draw. You know what? If you look, look at the pitches, see what he looks like. He's like, no, not that much. He was a babyface, a clean-cut, white-bread babyface draw in Memphis in the early '70s.
0: Yeah, yeah, he was, and like you said, he was really good in his day. And even after the knee injury, I, I still enjoyed Hickerson. Jerry Lawler against Bobo Brazil. This is a program I wish I could have seen. I think Bobo was over huge in Memphis. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he just left the WWF at this point. So, do you know if, if they did a program or if he just came in for one one shot?
1: This is the uh, well. They has been in before. Uh, he was in. Uh, he was one of the guys they brought in 1974 for the um, the Road to the Championship for Lawler. That's why I was looking at the year again. I was like 77. So Bobo will come in on occasion every few years, usually to do a job to Jerry. If they have like a big program with Jerry coming up, they'll usually bring in Bobo. Sometimes, you know, Mr. Wrestling to Johnny Walker, who, you know, they've all known for a while. So, um, I just, I don't think it was a major program. Usually it's a one shot deal. They're just getting, um, they'll have Bobo, you know, send in a promo. No, uh, he won't even be on hand usually. So that was generally how they did something like this, but I'm, I'm guessing, he had a title shot coming up against Harley Race.
0: Uh, very likely. As a matter of fact, this may have been the Jimmy Valiant title shot where he broke the Coke bottle over his head. Because I think that's coming up like early 78, late 77.
1: And I'm trying to think. Right around here somewhere, they, Jerry took a leave of absence for a while where he decided to have his little um, – uh, was this this year? Where he decided to have his, um, his music career. Basically, there's a reason to get Valiant in.
0: Okay, maybe I'm not sure,
1: but uh, let me see. But, uh, one thing that is about to start here, we must have just missed it. Is Lawler is about to start that program with Dundee? Uh,
0: yeah. When did Dundee arrive in Memphis?
1: Oh, he's been there for a couple of years at this point. He had okay. the tag team with George Barnes in right. uh, '75, and that was when Jerry had took one of his little hiatuses, and they got over big time. Um, him and him and Barnes. Barnes left. And then they turned Billy babyface. He was there in 76. He tagged with, uh, a, it looked like it was a diaper wearing Big Bad John. And he was the one who gave him the nickname Superstar, Superstar Daddy. And then we get to 77. They decide to go with the big run. This is when Memphis broke away. It would have been right around here um, a few months earlier where they broke away from uh, Gulas And went out on their own. They had a program earlier in the year with Rocky Johnson. So that's another reason why they're bringing all these guys in because this is the first year where he's breaking off on his own, so he's bringing in the artillery. And again, you can see how much the NWA loves the coolest. because all these NWA mainstays like Bobo Brazil, even though he's in opposition to, uh, to Nick, still, these guys are still coming down.
0: Yeah. Interesting result here. Bill Dromo, who was pretty much near the end of his ride in the pro wrestling business, over Tommy Gilbert by a DQ, and, and Tommy Gilbert was the guy they were pushing at this point because he looked like Burt Reynolds. Uh, it, just an interesting result there.
1: I think Tommy was – I think they, the, um, they had just pushed Tommy this year. I mean, I, or he had a big push earlier on, and he's just coming off of that push. So uh, maybe he's uh, putting over Bill Dromo for a short run coming in, or maybe they're going to have a program. I'm not sure. This wasn't a big Tommy Gilbert year, 74-75. With okay. big Tommy Gilbert years. Uh, he had that 74 was when he had the, the run against Lawler early on in the year that set up that just great year for them.
0: All right. And one final note on this card and Casey was a babe in 1976 and not qualifying it. Like, you know, pro wrestling, like she was hot. All right. My turn to pick a show. Let's go to championship wrestling from Florida in Orlando on July 19th, 1976. By the way, this is right when I started becoming like a a hardcore wrestling fan. I started to get the magazines and learn about all the – oh, wow, they don't have results. Let's try a different one.
1: Oh, I love this card. I love everything about it. (laughs) Except it doesn't have results.
0: I know. I don't care. WWE and Steubenville. Let's go to that one.
1: Actually, let me just read this one real quick what it is. We don't have the results, but uh, the, the the two main events. We have Bob Orton versus Ray Candy. The old man? Wow. I I love the uh, senior. The Florida heavyweight title match, Bob Orton Jr. Champion against Mike Graham. And then the reason I wanted to mention it, Lumberjack match. Bob Roop and Steve Kern. This was over huge. Yes. This was the feud with Bob Roop mouthing off about Steve Kern's dad. It was a POW in Vietnam.
0: A legit POW. Yep, absolutely.
1: This was a crazy hot feud.
0: All right. So – the Steubenville, Ohio card, St. John's Arena. Steubenville must be like on the far east side of Ohio. I'm not a Steubenville geography major here, but starts off Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, here we go in east. All right. Uh let me see. Sa- Pete Sanchez over Johnny Rods. Uh Sanchez was actually a wrestler who won some matches in the WWF. He was not a Frank Williams type. I I remember Rick Flair in his book saying, oh, you know, they put me against Pete Sanchez, who was a, a complete jobber. And I was like, no, Rick Sanchez was right around that uh, Steve Travis level of push.
1: I was going to ask you, how would you compare him to like career wise to Steve Lombardi? Uh, he seems like a guy who could make other guys look pretty, pretty damn good.
0: Oh, and I have a Pete Sanchez and Johnny Rod story in eighty early 83. They had a a match at uh, an ice arena in Tingsboro, Mass., which is, like, right on the the New Hampshire border. It's the next town over. And me and my friends went to it, and we saw Pete Sanchez and Johnny Rods getting out of a car, and we said, you know, hey, guys, how's it going? Oh, good. Hey, aren't you guys wrestling each other tonight? And they just, like, clammed up and ran into the building. And we did that without, like, even a hint of, you know, irony. Oh, aren't you guys? like? It just kind of dawned on one of us. So exposing the business in 1983.
1: Quickie aside, I believe I was saying the Lawler feud and they were, bra- I'm thinking 77. The- this is 76 again, but uh, yep. Bobo Rizzo every couple of years did come in. So that was, that was still valid.
0: No, I-, I made the same mistake. I like morphed into 77, 78. So thanks for bringing that up. Uh, SD Jones over Rocky Tamayo. These are two guys who were pretty evenly matched up. Once again, Tamayo didn't lose every match. Doug,
1: SD was getting a little push back then.
0: Oh yeah. He uh, he had been with the WWF for a while. So he was kinda in that same like SD Jones pigeonhole role that he had been in. Like, you know,
1: but jobber. He was only losing to like upper echelon guys. He wasn't losing to, you know, there was a certain level where S D wasn't losing anymore.
0: You yeah, see, this is what I like about wrestling from this era. I would have been at this arena. Wondering who would have won between SD Jones and Rocky Tamayo as they came in. It was it was evenly matched. Same thing with San odds. Yeah. Rods. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Doug Gilbert over Tony Altamore. I don't know if I've told oh, this story oh, before. I, Did I tell the Kevin Sullivan story about Doug Gilbert on the show? I was about to go off
1: on Tony Altamore, but go ahead.
0: OK, we can do that in a minute. Uh, Kevin Sullivan, according to him, said that Doug Gilbert was the first guy that everyone absolutely 100% knew was on steroids. And he was like, there were some question marks before him, but this guy was an exclamation point, which makes me say like, wow, there was a question about superstar Billy Graham. Huh.
1: Is Tony Altomore about 90 here?
0: Yeah, I only think he's like 87, 88.
1: Tony literally looks like your grant. It looks like like when on Sundays in if yo, you grew up in the 70s, there was I forgot what site we were on, but it was a bunch of us. The guys who are using on the Facebook page and there was a picture. Oh, OK, it was us. It was a picture in the basement, and in the, it was Harley Race playing the guitar. In the background, you saw that old 70s paneling basement that every grandmother's basement had back then. Right. That's to, and, so, and if you went and saw the guy sitting in the corner watching some random sports event, that guy would look exactly like Tony Altamori at this point. Yeah. With the bushy gray sideburns, and, you know, and he's doing all the hand signals and the stuff that you would do back in the 50s. I last saw him in a match in, like, I think it was 73, and he looked ancient then.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, he, I I know which match you're talking about, too, the Madison Square Garden match. And yeah, was, okay, yeah,
1: that would have been 75. It would have been um, one of the uh, Aryan okay,
0: matches. His, his opponent was Mike Piedusis. And I remember watching that match for the first time and being like, okay, these are the good old days everyone talks about and pro wrestling. is just nonsense now. I don't think so. Yeah, Altamore would have been a good extra on Goodfellas. Uh, Sucluna over Sullivan, another match that I would have come in saying, okay, who's going to win this? I would have been surprised when Sucluna won, but not shocked.
1: Yeah, back in the 70s, they kept their undercard guys strong. It was only when Hogan came in that they started wiping guys out. But most of these guys like SD, like, I mean, Johnny Rods was competitive uh, yeah. for a lot of years. And so all these guys were, you know, it, they, they didn't all become roadkill until later on.
0: You know the only guy in these first four matches that you know never won on tv was tony altimore and he was the by now he's the referee on tv sometimes so uh. yeah
1: you can't have to you cannot have tony going over at this point i mean tony's heyday was the early 60s and yeah. producers was before then
0: yeah that match is pretty bad and the oh. uh-oh random match bruce brody oh. over jose gonzalez Gonzalez fits right in with Mr. Sullivan, Gilbert, etc. But Brody's a star. How
1: many matches have they had together?
0: How many Brody-Gonzalez matches? Yeah. Oh, I I probably, I mean, probably literally 50, 60, 70. I mean, Gonzalez was the guy, you know, he was used to set up guys like Stan Hansen, Brozer Brody, Nikolai Volkov.
1: I still get, like, chill, like a little kind of creeped out kind of thing when I see those two in a match.
0: I saw them wrestle. I've I've mentioned that to you, right? Live or live like there? My, oh, live at Jack Witchie Sports Arena in North Attleboro, December seventy six. So I saw those two as my first ever show. Oh, pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's
1: just weird. And I I'm trying to imagine what the next match even looks like.
0: <laughs> it looks like. Uh, My dream match when I was 11 years old, and that was the main event also on the show I saw like six months later. Chief J Strongbow and Billy White Wolf against the Executioners, Killer Kowalski and Big John Studd.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. There was a match before then.
0: Oh, I missed it. Oh, and this is a big match too. Stan Hansen and Gorilla Monsoon. Two guys that you knew were big stars.
1: Okay, and so I'm guessing Hanson um, accidentally hits Monsoon with something within two minutes, and then this turns into like one potato after another for the next five.
0: <laughs> Probably not. I mean, nothing against Gorilla Monsoon, but that guy True. had. An and and I don't know what they're setting Stan Hansen up for, but yeah, by this point, Sam Martino is back after getting KO'd by Hanson, so Hanson should be going over strong, and I understand yeah. why they didn't have him go over strong with Monsoon, but because you, know, you got to protect him. And now, ladies and gentlemen... Have you
1: ever seen Monsoon pinned?
0: Have I ever seen him what? Pinned. I don't think so. I
1: don't think there's footage of it.
0: I'm sure he has, because he went around the horn with San Martino. But I don't think he was doing jobs for anyone in the 70s. Do you have an
1: easier time finding Piper taking a pin?
0: <laughs> I mean, I know he wrestled Stan Hansen at Madison Square Garden and got counted out. Uh in his yeah. last match against Ken Patera where he said if he didn't win he'd retire. He lost on a count out in Philly in nineteen eighty.
1: I see a trend.
0: Yeah, he has the Dusty
1: Rose finish where he has to take a disqualification to lose the
0: title. You know what though, in in, in fairness, not to, I'm not I'm not picking on monsoon because the WWF generally speaking protected guys like Putski, Morales, Atlas, all of their like underneath the champion baby faces generally got protected.
1: But what's the point of protecting them if you can't use them to get somebody over?
0: I don't know. There isn't one.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's not like you had a championship run in Monsoon left. What was he, 50?
0: 50 or close to it. I mean, I, you're, you're right. I mean, guys didn't even do clean jobs on their way out. That's how protected they were.
1: I The way it was is I was shocked to find out that other people did submissions. When Martel submitted the title away, I was stunned. You never saw that in the WWF. Nobody submitted.
0: No. I, I'm trying to think of all the times that major championships changed hands on submission. I think you named both of them. And Terry Funk's a guy who didn't care anyway, and Martel was a guy who apparently didn't care, even though I think that finish hurt him. Oh, absolutely hurt him. And, and, you know, no,
1: I, 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 there was no point of it either. I mean, how, how much of a future could they have with Hanson? They knew he was working with Japan.
0: Yeah, I think they... Saw Stan Hansen as their long term champion, and you know, long term was nuts. about five months.
1: I just don't understand why you have to keep these guys that strong if you're not using it to put somebody over. But more importantly for this card, and the reason why, obviously, you know, you URL you uh, someone, the fates have uh, destined you to pick this. Is that in the main event, two out of three falls, just to
0: make it three times more exciting?
1: Chief J Strongbow and Billy White Wolf versus the Executioners, which is basically John's dream match.
0: It was my dream match when I was 11. I'll tell you that. I mean, stop and think about it. I mean, Strongbow is what made me a hardcore wrestling fan when I was a kid. He's the one who got me rolling in it. And I mean, we might not be having this show right now if it wasn't for Strongbow. Well, it was
1: Morocco for me. So, I mean, I, I understand definitely where you're coming from. But so the, how long did this feud go on? I mean, this was actually a big deal. This was a big draw.
0: This was a really hot feud that went on far too long. By the time Strongbow and White Wolf got the titles, they were as stale as stale could be. Um, I mean, this feud deserved to have a run, like a two-match run, uh, in every arena that the WWF ran on. You know, twice in Philly, twice in Madison Square Garden, etc. But at that point, get the titles on Strongbow and White Wolf, and they just didn't. And the whole thing got really stale towards the end. Where is this in that feud? This is the beginning. I want to say Strongbow came back. Let me see. This is July sixteenth. I want to say he came back like late April when he just came out of nowhere on TV to save uh, White Wolf.
1: But coming back from that white hot the Shark Cage feud against Don Kent in Detroit. Why would he leave? Bad.
0: That was bad. Uh, And Strongbow had just left. Like not. I want to say not even a year earlier he had left. And according to White Wolf. He came back so quickly because White Wolf was stealing all his thunder. It's funny, they hated each other.
1: Well, I was going to say, again, another one in the uh, the long list of guys who love the Chief.
0: <laughs> yeah. And we have the Executioners. You know, this is Killer Kowalski's last run doing anything in wrestling and kind of breaking in his protege, Big John Studd.
1: And also John's wearing the mask because he's insanely old. But uh, he's also, he may be insanely old, but he's also in um, tremendous. It's funny. One of the things I posted was a card from Boston arena. It was a Bowser card from 1954. It was some kind of a benefit. It was Yukon Eric and Vern with hair Ganya against Hans Schmidt and Kowalski. I've seen That's it. how old Kowalski is. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. So that would have been 54 in Boston, some 23 years before then. So but again, he was in good shape, but he has such a distinct body. Yeah, You knew who he was.
0: I didn't because I had literally just started watching. But I, I couldn't okay, imagine yeah. if you were a fan two years ago, you did not know that was Kowalski. He
1: has that lanky kind of thing. And it's just so Vince always used to get confused, quote. Oh, I can't tell which one of the executors is. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. I mean, oh. come on. They could, they could not look more different physically.
0: They won the titles doing the switcheroo. On Serdan and Parisi. And even as a kid, I'm like, this referee can't tell the difference between these two guys. But yeah, that,
1: that, that back in the day, that was probably when you a trip down to the uh, New York Athletic Commission.
0: <laughs> really? All right. Let's do this again. Generating 1983, September 22nd. Why did that date stick out?
1: Why does it stick out?
0: It oh, September yeah. 17 shows. And something happened. September 22nd, 1980 was the Backland Race match, I think. So the date is not that. But anyway, mine's going a little bit slow. So hang on, please. This website is a lot of fun. Wrestlingdata.com. Hey, I'm finally here, and we've got a bunch of shows. What was it, uh, September? Uh, 22nd, 83. I know which one I'm picking.
1: Uh, we'll go um, Altoona, Georgia Championship Wrestling.
0: Okay, now let's. Still, let me start by saying, Georgia Championship Wrestling, you are not supposed to be running Altoona, Pennsylvania. Ole Anderson, don't tell me that you were this innocent bystander in the wrestling war. This is right outside of Pittsburgh, and you are invading Vince McMahon's territory before he ever invaded yours. So don't give me that. I'm um, so go right ahead, John. Let's do this.
1: And the whole reason I said that was because the only reason I picked this was because every time Larry Zbyszko had a promo, he had to mention Bruno and Altoona. Mm-hmm. Bruno's probably back home in Altoona, ducking me now. <laughs> the worst Larry Zbyszko impersonation ever. Um, and this is pretty much, this card is pretty much every card in 1983. Mr. Wrestling, I'm, I, that has to be Mr. Wrestling too, I'm assuming, right? Or...
0: Nope. It was Jesse Barr who was doing a gimmick as just Mr. Wrestling And they were building up a feud with Mr. Wrestling 2 that like never got off the ground. It was like it was the most obvious feud as soon as they brought this guy in and they just put him on TV and they never got started with it.
1: Didn't they do the exact same thing like a couple of years earlier? In
0: 1980, they brought in, was it 79? They brought in an imposter, Mr. Wrestling 2, Joe Powell, but he was actually pretending to be Mr. Wrestling 2. And Gordon's like, oh, wait a minute, I don't know about this. And then Mr. Wrestling Two shows up and confronts him.
1: Ronnie Garvin over Chris Markoff. Uh, I guess what Ronnie is Chris hasn't...
0: Markoff doing on this show? How old is Chris Markoff here? Very, very old and very, very retired. I'm, I'm guessing maybe he lived in the area. I don't know, but I, I remember like five years later, the AWA brought him back.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, Chris was a tag team partner with uh, Renee Goulet in the seventies.
0: As the Legionnaires.
1: Uh, The the Legionnaires, yeah. Okay, and then the fun starts. Mr. Wrestling 2 and Brett Wayne defeat the Road Warriors. Are the Road Warriors still in their uh, YMCA mode here?
0: I don't know. I
1: don't think so. With the leather gear and, uh, you know, they used to uh, have that kind of like biker look, but they more look like somebody from the uh, Village People.
0: They definitely looked like Village People ripoffs. And then one day they show up with the face paint and the mohawks. They were like, yes, there we go. And they fired Paul Ellering for no reason. Like, I think the, the week they debuted that look and then with no explanation, they're back with Ellering like six or seven weeks later. This promotion is right. not doing well at this point.
1: It was probably right after all the bills were due, and they realized no one was there to pay them. <laughs> oh, we just realized that we have no way to pay our bills. So can you get back on that, Ann? Here you
0: go. <laughs> Mr. Uh, is yeah. getting old at this point.
1: Yeah, but he's still over. I mean, when you look at these guys, there's not a lot of them here. Bruno San Martino Jr. defeated Larry Zabisco.
0: Oh, God. I could just pull Larry. <laughs> You know what? I saw that match in Nashua in 1982, and like 40 people showed up. At this point in his career, Sam Martino, I've said this before, he looked like he had some potential, even just based on his name. He's Bruno's kid, and he looks just like Bruno. Let me
1: ask you, where do you see Larry, not necessarily here, but where do you see an appropriate place, say, early
0: 80s for Larry to be pushed? Where should he be, in theory? I mean, by this point, he absolutely should have been back. In the WWF feuding with Backlund, I think he should have been there like no later than early 82. There should be late 82, early 83. He was conspicuous by his absence. And this is before we find out about the story where he had a, a falling out allegedly with Vince Sr.
1: But if he should be back in the WWF and main eventing with Backlund, then he certainly should be big enough to be main eventing in Georgia, you would think.
0: I, I disagree, and I'll tell you why. Because Zabisco had the backstory up here with him turning on Bruno. Unless you saw that on cable in Georgia, all you know is Larry Zabisco's babbling about this guy, Bruno Martino, who, you know, maybe some of the fans have read about in the magazine.
1: Yeah, that is true. I mean, uh, I keep forgetting that. And I'm looking at it from a New York perspective because I see these guys all the time. So when I yeah. see Zabisco, I'm thinking big star, but yeah, true. That happened with Chief J and um, Morales sometimes, down south at least. Morales was big out west. Then we have 45 minutes of Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer.
0: (laughs) Uh, Let me see. Well, we have Tommy Rich against Wild Bill Irwin. So Rich is working twice on this show. Wild Bill Irwin, at this point in his career in Georgia, looked like he had a future in this business as a big star. He looked great here.
1: What was missing? Because he looked like he should have been the big star. He was a, you know, I, I like his brother, but his brother wasn't the promo that Bill was.
0: No, he wasn't. Um, and I've said this on the show before. I think, you know, it was really sad that Scott got sick right when they found the gimmick that I thought was going to yep. make them money as long, long riders. Yep. Yeah. Uh,
1: because I, yeah, I thought he was like, if you look at him like right before the Freebird thing, and he's also kind of a victim of bad timing. Is that once he see, hits an area, something huge happens that doesn't involve him? Yeah. He was just getting some traction in Texas, and then they do the freebird thing.
0: You know that that's true. I think Wild Bill Irwin back then, when he was in Dallas, if you had tried to push him, at, I mean, when they, he was a top guy there, it was like, okay, this was a minor league promotion. Now here we are a year later, and Wild Bill has gotten way better. He's gotten way better at interviews. He's got the bull whip, and yeah, I, I thought he could have done. You know, he could have come to the WWF and did like a one and done with Backlund. That's how highly I thought of him. I th- I thought he could have been Georgia heavyweight champion.
1: If you bring him in out of nowhere and just, you know his brother may have been in um in Georgia for a while. Yeah, if you bring him out him out of nowhere and just put him in against, you know, uh, you know, Backlund, then yeah, I definitely think I think more than one. I'd say you can probably get, you know, maybe three if you push him correctly.
0: I, I think that's that. Uh, I I think that exceeds his ceiling. It's like I said, I've seen him. I've
1: seen worse guys get three. Who? Oh. Sweet Hansen hasn't gotten three on him. He got one. Man. <laughs> it must have. Been, I, I'm so traumatized by it. I have I have no notes in front of me. It must have been traumatized. to seem like three.
0: The only guys uh, who got three in New York against Backlund yes. were Stan Hansen, Greg Valentine. Morocco and Slaughter the second time, I think. Slaughter, actually, I think Slaughter was two the second time. Unless I'm forgetting someone, that's it. Split the difference with you. Give them two. (laughs) I think there are people who are like, no, I don't think he could have done a main event in Madison Square Garden, but I I saw something in in him at this point in his career.
1: Absolutely. I absolutely agree. He's one of these guys, he's like the Steve DeBerg of wrestlers, where his timing is just terrible. He's three years before a team gets really good all the time. All right, and so now we have Buzz Sawyer and Pez Watley. I like Pez. I, they, I Again, it's another guy who I just didn't – they didn't seem to know what to do with him.
0: I mean, I, I think Watley was part of the problem in Georgia, that they brought in a lot of guys who were relative unknowns, a lot of guys who had been working for uh, PAFO, And, I mean, individually they were fine, but collectively it was kind of a mess. Um, They did an angle on TV – where uh, Buzz Sawyer had not been beaten on Georgia television show. That's at least what they were saying. And he was about to wrestle Pez Whatley and Pez Whatley's doing an interview being really soft spoken about it. And the match was about to start and junk, our dog comes out. JYD hadn't been on Georgia in like two years. And he comes up and he's like, you know, basically get pumped up. Just don't be out here looking at your shoes and talking. And he slaps Whatley in the face. And Whatley's like going nuts. You just slapped me in the face. And Jyd's like, Hey, don't take it on me. Get in the ring. Take it on Buzz Sawyer. And Whatley just goes nuts, and he beats Sawyer in like sixty seconds. So then Sawyer comes back out screaming about you know what just happened, and Whatley gets in the ring with a, him again and pins him again. It was a, it was a, one of the few good angles around Georgia from this time.
1: What was I? Mean, I know there's a talent issue. It was Ollie running out of gas too?
0: I think creatively, Ollie yeah. was running out of gas. I've said this before on the show, always seemed like he was kind of getting burned out on being a wrestling promoter. I mean, just the, the quality control in Georgia was just nowhere to be found.
1: And finally you have the Tennessee street fight, which I'm sure is vastly different from the Altoona street fight <laughs> and the Atlanta street fights. And where else did they run this thing out? The, um, the, where, where's the masters?
0: Oh, Augusta.
1: Uh, the Augusta Street Fight. Um, I don't know. I'm assuming it is the same exact match they've had 7,000 times already.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they called it a Tennessee Street Fight because that's where Tommy Shrum and calling it a Florida Street Fight where Buzz is from just doesn't just sound as good. But I mean, at this point, Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer has been done to death. This might be the most overrated feud in the history of wrestling. These two have been added on and off. Since nineteen eighty one. It is now fall of nineteen eighty three and they're still pushing this match on television and it, it just wasn't good. I think part
1: of the reason the booking for this is why well, people
0: get frustrated with this,
1: is it was never used as like a main event. It was used when they couldn't think of anything else. Like, okay, we can't think of buzzing, you know. But there was never a big, huge kind of thing. I think the whole thing started Technically, was um, they had some little thing on TV where Oli Egg and Buzz on in 1981. And we're back when Buzz had hair and he looked he looked great. He looked like he's just going to be just a world class heel. But they kind of went away from it. Then they came back to it. It never really got any traction. The only time it got traction was at the end in 83 when, I mean, they booked it with traction. But the problem then is that everyone got sick of it.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing forever. Uh, and one quick other note I wanted to make before I selected a different show. In his book, Only Anderson says, I didn't know anything about wrestlers taking steroids. Give me a break. You've got the Road Warriors and you've got Buzz Sawyer looking like he's ready to explode on TV. The guy lost all his hair in two years. Yeah, it's Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, you know, he starts off the book with, look, you know, I might not remember everything personally, but I'm not going to tell you any lies. And it's like, how can you claim that these guys were not using anything?
1: He didn't claim that. He claimed he didn't notice it.
0: Yeah. He said he
1: didn't know anything about it. That's exactly. Yeah, he gave himself deniability, right?
0: Yeah. I I mean, I wish he could have just said, look. You know, I knew about it. It's part of the business. They were legal. I'm not going to tell these guys how to live their lives. That, that, that would have been the easy way to go. Oh, It was way too old school to go with that. Um, I guess. I am going to do Jacksonville. Ran a show on September 22nd, 1983. Let's check it out.
1: I believe. Ja- I don't know if it still was, but I believe Jacksonville was booked by Don Curtis.
0: Uh, At least, I don't mean booked, but promoted. Curtis was the promoter in Jacksonville. At least solely said that on TV all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I, he legit was. Okay. I believe it. Sam Houston defeated Mike Fever. Uh
1: I have no idea who Mike Fever is. Sam is, of course, Jake Jake Roberts' brother. Again, he's into the Kendall Wyndham way too skinny
0: fit. He was way too skinny. I knew Mike Fever personally. <laughs> I, I have no recollection of this guy. Who who is he? I mean he was, you know, he wrestled in Georgia. On TV, he was a TV jobber. Then he moved into Florida. Florida had a manager named Jimmy Holiday. And Mike Fever told me that Jimmy Holiday was his brother. And I don't doubt it, because here they are on the circuit together. More on Jimmy Holiday in a minute. But yeah, Sam Houston was just, I mean, what? he was just starting, and I get it. He's in the opener, so it's not killing anybody.
1: Hector Guerrero against Tony D'Amato?
0: Tony D'Amato, he was on Florida TV a lot, a uh, job guy right around this time. Hector Guerrero right now had just turned heel. He was doing a gimmick where he was like wearing uh, bandoleros on TV, and he had the uh, the Mexican hat, and he, and he grew out his facial hair. He was small, but he looked like a badass. This was a great gimmick that I thought was going to get him over big. I, he was a Mexican heel in an American state.
1: Um, yeah, oh yeah. Hector's tremendous at this point. He, um, right around here, he w- made a trip to Memphis, I think, maybe somewhere in the early 80s. He was good too. Again, he's another one you look at, like Bill Irwin. It just looked like it just some bad luck or something where he wasn't even a bigger star, you know, maybe, but he was very good.
0: I mean, I have heard that Chavo Guerrero, I've heard from more than one person that Chavo Guerrero was not easy to get along with. But when the Guerreros came out, when Ch- when Chavo came in and they were doing that gimmick, I, I was like, this is a moneymaker. And to this day, I just don't understand why Crockett didn't bring these guys in. They would have had great matches with the Rock and Roll Express. And Chavo was one of L.A.'s last great stars. Yeah, he was. He was the top guy right when they started to decline. And I know that sounds like I'm blaming it on Chavo, no, but definitely was no. not his fault.
1: He's like Quinn Buckner. Quinn Buckner? Yeah, because he always used to say he was the best player on the worst team ever.
0: Okay. Uh, when I, when you say Quinn Buckner, I think 1976, Indiana, undefeated team. But I know he did a lot more than that.
1: Yeah, he played with the 76ers in the late 70s, I think. And uh, he was fine, but the team was terrible. How about this? Paul Horning with Notre Dame.
0: Okay, there you go.
1: Mike Davis defeated J.J. Dillon. Had Mike Davis done his Dusty Rhodes impersonation yet?
0: He had not. He did that in 1974, and I will never understand why they did not run with that.
1: And he also was a member of the—1974?
0: Uh, no, 1984. Excuse me. Uh, okay.
1: And he also was one half of the Rock and Roll RPMs.
0: Yeah, the Rock and Roll RPMs, man. That was They might have been good in the ring, but they just did not look good with that gimmick. Mm. I mean, you got— Two bald guys trying to be Rock and Roll Express dudes, and it was the knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff. Exactly. I, I can't. I'm actually very surprised that JCP brought them in for a little while in '85
1: because they could work. Mike can work. Yeah, you're not putting them, you know, a championship on them at that level. No. But you know, they can make some other guys look decent. You know, and they, I wouldn't mind seeing them get a butt kicking from the, you know, the Midnight's.
0: Uh, I mean, I can see it. Like you know, kind of a undercard. Team with a gimmick, even though that kind of goes against you know, if everyone has a gimmick, none of them matter.
1: Now, I don't know. Next match is Mike Rotundo against Joe LeDuc. I love Mike against big guys. I just, it just Mike will quickly in all the he did a similar thing. I don't know if it was the same gimmick, but he did a similar kind of, it was with uh, I want to say it was badly Roy Brown uh, up in JCP, probably around 81, maybe 82 ish. And uh, Mike is so legit that uh, the size difference, he'll make it up, but he can still play the underdog. It's a good role for Mike, of course. I like Mike more than most people do. But I haven't. if you're going to have a matchup with him, having him with a quick big guy like LeDuc is a good matchup. I'm sure that was an entertaining
0: match. The Rotundo, what's his name? Bad, bad lawyer, Brown. I think that was late 82 or early 83. And uh, okay. Brown was managed by Sir Oliver Humperdinck. They brought Rotundo in from mid Atlantic where he was kind of a, a mid card guy. And immediately he got the big push as Florida heavyweight champion. And he's kind of an Eddie Graham kind of guy. He's got that legit amateur background. He's young. They did this a lot. And I think they did it extremely well with Mike Rotunda.
1: They just kept pushing him as a face though. I, I still think he would have been a better heel. With some, uh, like, uh, um, they were kind of, They were in the right direction when they were doing the Varsity Club, but just some guy from Revenge of the Nerds, you know? yeah. That should have been Mike Rotundo, and it would have been perfect. Why, Ronnie? Why is this? I'm guessing the. <laughs> I'm guessing the Dusty Ron Bass was. Is this the feud with the uh, race?
0: Uh this is this match wow. happened shortly after the Dusty Rhodes versus Harley Race match, where Ron Bass, Dusty's best friend, so you know what's going to happen next turns on Dusty and costs him the NWA title. Ron Bass was the referee for that match.
1: Ronnie's beating the crap out of Dusty with a boot or something, and Dusty's bleeding going, "Why, Ron F., But it got it over, though. You could tell this is one of Dusty's buddies, because he got this guy over. And I like Ron anyway. I know Ron takes grief. And there's, you know, but something like this, did they ever bring him up to New York? I know they brought him up later, but did they ever bring him up early on, like maybe the 80s somewhere? I could see, what about him in Backland?
0: Bass is another guy who could have had a one-and-done with Backlund, no questions asked. But I think when they made, you know, first of all, they sold the story for a long time that Dusty Rhodes, Ron Bass, and Blackjack Mulligan all owned a ranch out in Florida. And so these guys are tight, and then Ron Bass just turns around and turns on Dusty and costs him the NWA title. My take at the time was Ron Bass, he just didn't have the it factor to be the lead heel in a promotion like Florida. And it felt right around this time like Florida was starting to fade fast.
1: Well, I mean, maybe. Why is. Do we have any idea why Wyndham's going twice here? And if, if that's the case, is is Mike Rotondo, uh, not Wyndham, is Rotundo a fill in in the last match? And is that the first appearance of the U.S. Express?
0: Well, let me go back a little bit. Uh, we were going to talk about uh, Jim Holiday. Jim Holiday was in the promotion as a manager, as was J.J. Dillon. And it was pretty obvious that J.J. Dillon was like the alpha male manager. And he had a, an agreement with Ron Bass that, Ronnie, you're the only man I'm going to manage. Everyone else, I'm not managing anyone else in this. And I'm going to take you all the way to the top. You're going to beat Harley Race for the NWA title. And you're my only guy. Well, meanwhile, you've got Jimmy Holiday managing the Zambui Express. I know that managing Joe LeDuc. and he's getting like pushed around by these guys. And it was obvious, like who was it? it was the Zambui Express were having an argument with him? And J.J. Dillon comes out and breaks up the argument, and they just made it obvious that this Jimmy Holiday guy was a J.J. Dillon flunky who was running around, you know as, what's the word I'm looking for, pretending to manage all these other guys when, in fact, J.J. was managing them. And this apparently was how they're going to turn Ron Bass back babyface, but it was a little too soon for that, but it was a cool angle.
1: It sounds like what they did with Jimmy Hart and Jim Cornette.
0: It was exactly that kind of dynamic, where Jim Cornette, at that time, was clearly the number two guy.
1: Yeah, I had heard that the Zambui Express was called that, and they are, for those who don't know, it's... uh.
0: Leroy R- Brown and Ray Candy.
1: And Ray Candy. And they got the name um, Zamboui Express because Blackjack Mulligan was incapable of saying Zimbabwe.
0: <laughs> I had also heard the story that they renamed themselves Elijah Akeem and Kareem Muhammad because Dusty Rhodes and Eddie Graham were watching the 1983 Basketball Championship Finals. With the University of Houston uh, team, the, the Phi Jamma team with Akeem oh, Olajuwon and uh, Clyde Drexler. They had a couple of other guys who were, like, crazy good. They lost to NC State in the finals, but whatever. And they were like, you know what? Let's create a team of, like, you know, Akeem something and, you know, Kareem whatever, and here we are.
1: I still would have liked to see, to go back to the uh, U.S. Express, People forget because Hogan was there. How over these guys were around
0: WrestleMania one time? They were number two, clearly. Ah, uh, let me see. Around WrestleMania time, uh, I would say JYD was ahead of them, but they were clearly—I mm-hmm. mean, soldiers of the other top tag teams. Well,
1: without question, he had the number one tag team. As far as J- JYD was on the downward slope by the time they hit WrestleMania.
0: He had just gotten there, like September '84. But you're right. The arrow was pointed downward.
1: Yeah, even when you get to 85, once Hogan showed up, you can just kind of feel and The same thing happened to Morocco. And, you know, once Hogan shows up, they kind of saw the writing on the wall, it feels like. And it just kind of went down from there. So I'm thinking like the WrestleMania push when they got to that point where it was like the whole Hogan-Piper thing. It just seemed like when WrestleMania became like the story, Dawn and guys like Dawn and JYD started to fade. The U.S. Express, actually, most of the baby faces started to fade, except for the U.S. Express. They were the only ones who kind of seemed to be hanging with them a little bit.
0: Yeah, I remember they brought in Rotundo, Wyndham, Billy Jack Haynes, and I think someone else at the same time. And oh, I'm trying to remember who, and I can't. And they put them all on the program, like, here are your new stars. Like, they had big plans for those guys.
1: I remember, I think it was Kevin Sullivan was doing, uh, like, one of those rebooked things regarding if Hogan didn't show up and who was your guy. And I think he said his guy was Barry. My only issue with Barry at this point is the promos weren't quite what they would be yet, but that yeah. was it. I mean, as far as him in the ring, he needed to bulk up a little bit, but uh, that was it. it. was, you were getting really close. He was
0: absolutely a solid baby face around this time. He looked like a guy who maybe not September 83, but give it another 18 months. He could have been wearing the NWA title.
1: He had it. There was no question about it. And Rick loved him at this point, didn't he? Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it would have been a fair guess that if he's going to drop the title to somebody during this run, Barry probably would have got a... Well, okay, let's say, say, by, say, Starrcade 85, say Barry's in the NWA, say it was JCP. Where do you put him on that card? Where would he end up being?
0: I mean, if he was in JCP at that point, he should have been a strong number three baby face. And that was a problem with JCP. You had Dusty and Magnum, and then you had Dusty and Nikita, and then everyone else was like in this kind of lame tie for like four, number four baby face. And I think Wyndham would have been above that. He probably would have gotten Terry Taylor's spot, to be honest with you, against Buddy Landell.
1: Wouldn't he have gotten Magnum's spot?
0: It d- depends. He was originally supposed to get Magnum's spot. That's like, why That I was all supposed to belong to Barry Wyndham, and. He quit. He was unhappy with his paychecks. He got an offer from the WWF. But let's say he left the WWF summer '85. Let's say he and Dusty could iron things out and come in. Like I think he would have been the equivalent of Magnum TA.
1: How about this? You keep Barry around. I'm. I'm
0: this is what happens when you don't give
1: me notes. You keep Barry around for WrestleMania. And then eventually you have the kind of him and Hogan thing bumping up against each other. Cause they're both baby faces kind of similar to what happened with Savage and Hogan and, and or warrior and Hogan. And then, but you flip Barry. There's your WrestleMania too.
0: I don't know if Barry was ready physically for that yet. I mean, Hogan was so much bigger, all well, bigger than everybody, but, yeah, but was we're
1: talking, big. we're talking the next year.
0: Uh, I mean, still I'm picturing 86 Wyndham and he was a, phenomenal performer. I mean, if you haven't seen it, go watch the Valentine's Day 1986 match Battle of the Belts with Ric Flair. It's one of the best matches ever. But Barry still is a little bit on the scrawny side. He got over that right around 87, 88. And he was huge by the time he got back to the WWF in 89.
1: I have a feeling if a WrestleMania 2 main event is being dangled in front of his face, he would gain that weight quickly.
0: Well, he would have. He would have smartened up quickly. But, I mean, there was major heat between he and Vince by that point. By the time he quit in uh, – so it was like August, September 85. I mean, he and Vince had major heat. I In a way, I'm surprised he ever went back.
1: I'm almost – you know, I want to blame Vince on almost all of these things. But Barry had a tendency of shooting his way out of town early.
0: Uh, he did, and he also allegedly – had Blackjack Mulligan giving him all kinds of bad advice. Uh, just walk out on him. Yeah.
1: There's another guy who doesn't mind who he aggravates and what Bridgie Burns. So, I mean, it's... Yeah, I thought uh, when I saw Barry in 85, he was kind of... They just kind of got overwhelmed by Hulk, and I think that's probably what bothered him. But if he just... Oh, if he just weighed that out, and they kind Because of, they must have... You could just see it in them. I mean, and that crowd... Even tondo. I mean, both of them were crazy. I still can't believe they lost in WrestleMania one.
0: I, I, I can't... Oh. I can, because you know what? It was like, hey, guys, just lose the belts. We can have a title change. We'll put him right back on you. And Barry came unglued over that, apparently.
1: Oh, I, but I, I agree with them because that's fine. You're going to gain it back someplace else. No one remembers when they gained it back. I, I bet you if you ask, most people don't even remember they actually got the belts back. It's one of those things where it was WrestleMania and they lost it in the high-profile match.
0: I mean, 35 years later, I agree with you. But the people who watch WWF, like, and were going to the arenas, watching the TV, they remember it.
1: Hey, you want to have a change? Real simple. Have them drop it to Sheik and Koloff in the Garden, in Boston Garden, two months earlier. And then have them win it back. Now you You have a title change.
0: First of all, they already did that with Lilani Kai and Wendy Richter. I don't think you can do that twice.
1: I'd be way more upset about messing up Barry's push. Because even... Your women's division at that point is not like it was today. You had a cap. What is the highest you've ever seen a women's match on WWF card back in those days?
0: Uh, Even go back in the 70s. I mean, Wendy Richter's push, there's nothing to compare any female push in the WWF versus Wendy Richter in 1984. I don't think you can compare it today. And and they push back. And even then, uh, even then there was a much, much bigger upside with Barry. I mean, I, I agree with you on that. My feeling is that Barry just kind of overreacted by just going into the tank after this, oh, and pretty soon course. he's gone. But he does.
1: But, I mean, yeah, yeah no, I agree with that. I See, I, that's, I don't want to necessarily defend Barry here, but I don't think they handled him well. And here's the thing. Finn has spent the next how many years looking for his next baby face? He can having to flip all his heels. Uh, well,
0: that's – I mean, that's how it goes in wrestling when – used to be you'd have a guy in for six, seven, eight months, and they go on to the next territory. Now you've got guys in promotions indefinitely, and you have to freshen up their character with a turn. Not as much as the NWA did, but the WWF seemed to have a pretty good finger on the pulse when it came to that.
1: I always had a feeling that Vince would have liked to had somebody. I, I, I don't think he liked, nothing personal, I don't think he liked having that reliance on Hogan, or on one guy. Not necessarily. No,
0: Hogan. he did. He did So uh,
1: that's what I'm saying. That's why he's probably looking at Barry like, okay, you're
0: next. Yeah. yeah let's, I mean, we talked about Blackjack Mulligan a little bit. I mean, Vince brought him in twice. He brought him in towards the end of 84 and gave him a big push. And Mulligan yep. walked out over God knows what. Then he came back as one of the machines. And then after that gimmick was over, he was back as Blackjack Mulligan. And they gave him a big push with his own Roddy Piper-like talk segment. And he walked out over some shit before that. Blackster Mulligan's is not getting hired by anyone else. And he keeps walking out on Vince.
1: He walked out of JCP, walked out in Florida. He does it all over the place. He's probably not the ideal person to be taking career advice from. If That's you're right.
0: I forgot they brought Mulligan back to JCP in 84, mm-hmm. and they were going to give him a huge push. And he didn't even last a month there. Okay, I remember this, and it was one of the craziest friggin' things I've ever seen in wrestling. And I've seen a lot of crazy things. They have a campfire, and it's a bunch of cowboys sitting around the campfire, and Blackjack Mulligan's one of them. And one of them's playing the guitar. Ric Flair shows up being as Ric Flair as Ric Flair can be, the suit, the big-ass medallion, and he starts trying to talk Blackjack Mulligan into coming back and helping him. But get this. The audio, you could barely hear the conversation because of the guitar playing. It was nuts. You could hear the fire, the crackling of the fire. (laughs) Yes, you could hear Rick. Oh, and they ran it anyway. They didn't redo it. They just said, okay, here's what it is. Cinema
1: Verite. Yeah.
0: This has been a fun and different episode of Stick to Wrestling. If I didn't mention this, we're recording this April 8th, 2020. We will probably release this in June, unless something happens where we can't do a show. I am hoping that the world gets back to a somewhat normal place by the time this comes out. And that's pretty much it. I want to thank Sean Goodwin for all the great work he does for the show. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer who makes us sound reasonably good. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.